0: Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this morning, I'm excited to be sharing a conversation I moderated at the virtual conference for the Religion News Association. The title of the presentation was, We're on a Mission from God, Religion in the Halls of Power and it features a group of lobbyists and advocates representing a diversity of faith community perspectives the event was held in september of 2020 hence why you'll hear a number of references to the previous administration it's amazing to listen back and realize how the landscape has changed uh, in in certain respects so much in just a half a year in any case i had a great time working on this event with my RNA colleagues, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Thank you everybody for for joining us for this great panel. I'm Jack Gordon. I'm the host of Interfaith-ish bi-weekly dialogue radio show on WOWD 94.3 FM Tacoma Radio. And I want to first start by appreciating our indefatigable team behind the scenes, Tiffany and Brian for helping get us running today and through this, uh, this week of the conference. Um, I just want to thank Benachem Weker for helping put this panel together. And of course, I'm, I'm thankful to all of our terrific panelists who've taken the time to join us in this discussion of the intersections of religion and policy and politics. So, the motivation behind this session was to hear about the experience of folks from different traditions as they lobby and advocate on the Hill. In particular, what's it like for uh, a group or a representative of a group that isn't very well known to members of Congress or their staff, uh, when folks have trouble pronouncing the group's name, let alone having familiarity with the issue that you came to advocate for, and also wondering. You know, what is what if your theology or perceptions of your beliefs aren't something that the official agrees with at all or is wary of publicly being associated with? So we're going to get into all that today. We've got a great panel of guests with a diverse set of experiences to help explore these questions. First up is Ziba Murat, who is a Uyghur advocate and the daughter of Gulshan Abbas, who's currently being detained by the Chinese government. Thank you for joining us, Ziba. We also have Roger, who's an organizer with Black Non-Believers DC. Thank you for being with us. And Reverend Mitch Hescox, who is the president of the Evangelical Environmental Network, uh, who we're grateful for stepping in last minute to, to sub. Thank you. And finally, Anthony Vance, who's director of the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. And I'll share that um, I've previously worked with Anthony's office as a consultant on various media projects. Um, I also want to acknowledge that Ziba has to leave early. So if our audience has any questions for her, please share them throughout the conversation and I'll try to get to them as we go along. Uh, so Ziba, I want to start with you. First of all, I want to express my my sympathy for your family's separation from your mother, and I really genuinely hope that you all are reunited with her soon. I can't imagine how hard that must be for you all. Um, I want to encourage everyone to read Zeba's September 10th op-ed in the Washington Post where Ziba shares the heartbreaking story of her mother's imprisonment. Um, so that's where I want to start. If, if you could just begin by sharing a bit of how you were thrust into this role as an advocate about two years ago.
1: Um, first of all, thank you for having me today. Um, uh, I was just a normal mom to a new baby two years ago when my daughter was three months old. And on September 10th, I talked to my mother as usual. Um, The next day, starting from September 11th, I just lost contact with her completely. Um, Till today, we don't know where she's being held or her health or what happened to her. We're still searching for answers. Um, That's how I got sucked into this um, advocacy work to work for my mom's freedom. From
0: concentration camps, so our, our audience might be familiar with your aunt Rushana Abbas, who's the director of campaign for Uyghurs and and you know, similar to yourself, has really um, made this a mission in her life. Um, but as you said, you're not a you know, you're not a human rights lawyer, you're not an organizer by profession. So what was that experience like the the first time that you spoke out publicly and and who were you addressing?
1: um it was hard um my my advocacy first started at real out like um the time that i spoke out was last year april 2019 i came to congress to te- to attend my aunt's testimony um at the uh, executive commission on china she testified about my mom and uh, the situation with uyghurs um That was like after seven months, my mom was taken. I was so hesitant before that to come out because I was worried that the further retaliation might come to her and my father back home so um, I still have very mixed feeling on one hand, I have to fight for her because she doesn 't have anybody who's fighting for her back home, but on one hand, I fear for my father's safety, and other relative safety. So that intimidation and the scare is still there.
0: Anthony, one of the major efforts that your office leads, similar to some of the experience that, that Ziba is, is uh, describing, is to advocate for religious freedom abroad, particularly for Baha'is who are a religious minority, in, notably in Iran, and are persecuted by the government there. Um, so I wanted to hear a little bit about the story of how the US Baha'i Office of Public Affairs was was started.
2: For those in the audience who are unaware of the origins of the Baha'i faith, it began in the middle of the 19th century in Iran. Today there are about 300,000 Baha'is in Iran, uh, but there are about five to six million Baha'is in the world. So the Iranians are today a minority within the Baha'i faith. Um, Now, in the United States, back in 1978, when the uh, persecution of the Baha'is in Iran began in a systematic fashion, there had been sporadic persecution since the middle of the 19th century, um, and very severe persecution with 10,000 people killed from 1845 to 1855, Um, but just sporadic persecution until the 1979 revolution when it became systematic after Khomeini uh, arrived back in Iran in February of 1979. But, uh, you know, as you said uh, earlier, uh, Jack, uh, the Baha'i faith was really unknown in the United States. And this was a big handicap in trying to get um, government officials interested in it. So um, initially, In fact, uh, as as serious steps began to be taken in late 1978 as the Shah was falling, and then after he fell in 1979, very difficult to get appointments with uh, US government officials. Uh, In fact, the individual who led this, uh, I had a chance to interview him many years later, uh, told me that, you know, Because the faith was so unknown, the Baha'i faith was so unknown, there were very few officials willing to uh, talk to the Baha'is. In fact, you know, the Baha'i house of worship in Wilmette, Illinois, which is a unique, beautiful architectural structure, was the main source of inquiries about the Baha'i faith in the United States uh, until the Revolution. And the second most significant was Seals and Crofts, you know, the musical group uh, back then. Nevertheless, you know, a strategy was developed to try to reach the Congress, to try to reach the State Department, and to try to reach the press. And the first significant meeting of any significance took place in early 1980, where two members of our National Governing Council, one of them, Farouz Kazemzadeh, who was a uh, professor at Yale, professor of history at Yale at the time, um, met with uh, Patricia Darien, the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. And so it so happened that one of uh, Darien's staffers was a former student of Peru's Kazemzadeh, And, um, you know, so when he was ushered into her Her presence, uh, he said, oh, the the professor here is here, my former professor is here. And she uh, immediately relaxed when she realized that this was a person of stature and, you know, a Yale professor and was known to this staffer of hers. Um, And, uh, you know, she became, in fact, she took off her shoes, sat up on the couch and asked them, so what can I do for you? And, of course, he said he was seeking support for the Baha'is. And and she said, uh, well, you know, I could call Cyrus Vance. This was in early 1980 before Cyrus Vance um, uh, resigned. I could give Cy Vance a call, but uh, I would only get a staffer. You know, this is the assistant secretary talking. And then she said, but Cy Vance will come on the line directly with a member of Congress. And so that was a piece of advice that was stored, you know, um and became significant later on.
0: It seems like it's it's a the personal connection is really the thing that is making the difference. Oh, to, absolutely. To that
2: absolutely. And and you know, all of these problems with legitimacy could be um immediately, you know, almost entirely wiped away through these kinds of relationships that uh, existed.
0: I want to go back to, to Zeba on on that point then. Um you know one of the things about the 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 issue with the Uyghurs has certainly been that it's been a relatively unknown group that has has uh the, the issue has grown in in prominence. Um and I wanted to just briefly get a um uh a response from you about about how has it been to hear and see um the name of of what you know many americans probably were not a group that many americans were not familiar with just a short time ago maybe even just a year ago Mm -hmm. now be you know commanding headlines
1: yeah um i think it's still we have a lot of like grassroot people still doesn't know about the issue, even though the high level government officials knows a lot about it. Um, Yeah, until the concentration issue came out, most of the people doesn't know who the Oilers are, or sometime when I say I'm a I get a question like, what's that? They don't even know. So after the concentration camps came out, um, we have a lot of coverage in the media and also different hearings on the congress and senate that brought up the issue to spotlight and when i talk about my own experience i've always received a lot of sympathy um, a lot of support um, especially some of the senate members have worked with me very closely but um yeah still uh, we need to work on educating those people the grassroots people regular american people regular um people around the world to have this issue this is not only um some policy issue or what other countries um have but this is like a, a humanity issue and what's going on to Uyghurs are it's i think unprecedented especially now the camps are still expanding they're not stopping but yesterday we just had a report that shows that the camp, so they're still building the camp, they're still building the prisons. Mm-hmm. So um, it's time that everybody stand together to speak out about this evil, um, to stop. Roger, for you, it's
0: a, it's a bit of a different issue than our previous two speakers um, being from relatively unknown groups. Um, perhaps it's not so much a question of... of uh, who are you, but why are you here for for uh, folks that are from the humanist or atheist community. So I'm curious what the reaction is when you started calling offices, asking them to meet with your group called Black Nonbelievers.
3: Interestingly enough, I'll, I'll push back just a little bit in that um, while our coalition is not as prominent as the Uyghur Muslims that Ziba was talking about, um, there is still a bit of questioning about who are we in the sense of, um, especially as black non-believers, black atheists, black agnostics, and so forth. Um, Because especially in our communities, that's still uh, such a taboo that in many ways people don't even really know what the word means Um, and they don't know even if they do know the word they often don't know what is behind the concept and certainly what's behind the concept of organized activism in in this space as non-believers and atheists and so forth Um, so we get a little bit of both we get a bit of questions about who we are and then also, okay. Well, then, why are you here? Why don't you just keep it to yourself? Um, why don't you just? Um, why why do you have to push that on onto other people? And so, there's a lot of uh, confusion um, and miseducation around um, what uh, a non-believer, an atheist, uh, or just a general um, heretic, in this way, what we are, and then following up with. Why do we care to to say that or announce that to anybody
0: and so are you when you're going out are you um, talking to all members of congress do do you feel a um, a particular motivation to speak to for example, members of the Congressional Black Caucus?
3: There is, for the first time ever in this Congress, there's a Free Thought Congress, uh, a Free Thought Caucus, excuse me. And so there's a Black Caucus, there's a Latino Caucus and so forth. And, and uh, this uh, particular session, chaired by uh, Rep- Representative uh, Huff- Huffman out of California, Jared Huffman, and um, the other one is out of Maryland, Raskin, Jamie Raskin, uh, they chair or co- uh, they're both chairs of that Congress. And I do think we have, uh, at least one person of color um, on the Free Thought Caucus. Um, however, I've had a lot of difficulty trying to sort of make inroads into the Black Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> and uh, for the last two years, I've attended the CBC uh, convention, which is here in D.C., and um i didn't attend this one most recently that was online um but i've been trying to sort of uh just be in those spaces and then uh if we're not invited to panels and so forth i'm trying to uh raise questions in panels that acknowledge us and that acknowledge the issues that intersect with our communities
0: thank you uh mitch in in contrast to the other guests i i would assume that you perhaps have the easiest time of of getting a meeting, getting folks to take a meeting, since most folks on the Hill probably have, have heard of Christians. Um, but you're also an environmental advocate, so I'm, I'm curious how you navigate both the faith question and, and the increasingly divided worldview or ideology when it comes to climate change.
4: Well, hopefully we're making it so it's not so much of a segregated issue, and I think that's coming together. But um, you know, I can tell you that in airplanes, when people ask me what I do when I before COVID, when I would say that I'm a evangelical environmentalist, they would answer, "What in the eight G double hockey sticks are you talking about?" <laughs> um, so, um, but so we're an unusual beast. But no, for the most part, um, you know, it's relatively easy for us to get meetings. I have you know a lot of personal relationships with senators and house members. Um, I spend most of my time in. On the Senate side, I used to spend a lot of time in the in the administration, but uh, not so much these days for reasons you can understand why on the environment. Um, but you know, I think our our job is to make the biblical case that uh, you know, from a Christian perspective, um, God owns the entire earth and uh, created it, and we are just but stewards of it. And but our number one priority is caring about human life. And one of the things that we stress all the time on Capitol Hill is just the impact of pollution, whether it's climate change or other things on the health of humanity, especially right here in the United States. Um, When I tell people that 200,000 people, 200,000 people in the U S alone die from soot every year, people wake up and say, what are you talking about? Well, it's a reality and it's something, and even it's going to be worse than that with all the forest fires we have now. And that, by the way, just came from, um, to burning combustion of fossil fuels for use and doesn't include things like this, the fires that are you know, just burning rampantly throughout the West.
0: Thank you. Uh, I want to remind everyone in our audience to, to be sure to share questions as we're going along for the panel. We'll, um, we'll address uh, most of them at the end, um, but uh, since Zeba has to um, duck out early, I do want to get to one question that came in for her from uh, Julia Duin. uh, Julia says, it feels like journalists are doing their job in writing about Uyghurs and notes that one group actually won a major RNA award last night. Um, But are governments, especially Muslim ones, listening? What more can the U.S. government do to influence China on this?
1: I think um, from my perspective, this issue has to be um, brought up in every dialogue with the Chinese government. The human rights issue has to be center of it. And those, you know, families, the, those missing members, the, the ones who disappeared, has to be brought up in a, every conversation to push more. The pressure must be kept up. Um, yeah, um, U.S. has, it's the first country that has called out the concentration camps. Also last year, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act was passed as a law. And also um, recently, the um, We Were Human Rights, uh, We Were Forced Labor Prevention Act was also passed the House just, uh, uh, I think, a few days ago. So these are the examples of the um, steps that we wanted to see from the other countries as well, um, especially Muslim country. But I think um, the Muslim majority countries are also um, influenced by the propaganda of the Chinese side. So I I hope that they will look at this as a humanitarian issue, not other um, way. I I was
0: particularly curious about given given the um, uh, controversy that's come up around the release of Mulan, which you wrote about in your in your op-ed, um, and and folks who want details on that can can read your your op-ed in the Washington Post. For for efforts like that, what do you think is the is the effort going forward? I mean, that seems like such a, a a strong entity, almost as powerful as a as a government to take on a you know a corporation like that to try to get the attention there. Um, uh,
1: corporation corporation when doing business with China, they have to think about those people who are put in the concentration camps. They have to know where their investments are going to, and they have to be mindful. And um, it Chinese government must be like called out on every um, opportunity you get, because the concentration camp shouldn't be belong in this century. We, you know, we've seen before what happened, but it was too late. So we don't want the we don't want another never again to happen. So.
0: Thank you. Anthony, I'll come back to you on, on this issue of, um, of religious freedom. Um, how, do you, how do you feel that the U.S. government has been doing, particularly for the Baha'is abroad? I know that a lot of the work that you're doing right now also has to do with Yemen in addition to Iran. Um, can you talk about, about some of the advocacy and, and the impact?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Um, and I hope uh, things go well for your, uh, your relatives, uh, Ziba. I, I know you'll be leaving the call soon. You know, the, the real watershed point for us was actually back in 1982, when uh, finally the, the, the Senate, first in June, and then the House of Representatives in September, passed resolutions uh, condemning the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. And ever since then, both houses of Congress, except for one Congress, both houses have passed resolutions regarding the Bahais in Iran. And the State Department has also been engaged. Of course, this has been to varying degrees. Um, The uh, last few years, there has been very good support. There was also support in the second, especially in the second term of the Obama administration, um, where there was a. Where there were a couple of very strong statements made about the uh, Bahais in Iran, the um, we you know are very fortunate now in that the case is well known. Um, the persecution has become systematic. Uh, it's uh, there are lots of documents, internal documents from Iran that make it easy to show what they're. Um, and. Uh, there is, we have a track record of providing information that's accurate. And so um, we've managed to get, you know, that's a long way of saying that we've managed to get good, solid support. Of course, you know, there are always times when we wish we had more support, but uh, it would be difficult to say that we have not had strong support. Um,
0: Have you had particular leading partners or champions? For the issue within the government
2: well the, you know the establishment in the State Department of the Office of International Religious Freedom back in uh, uh, the legislation was passed, I believe in one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight and the um, you know that actually placed a focus on religious freedom abroad, uh, whereas before it had been an ancillary aspect of human rights, uh, and so that entire office is is focused on religious freedom and is familiar with kinds of issues that face religious minorities. So it makes it a lot easier to get our message across, and they are quite uh, responsive and attentive. Um, They were very helpful in securing the release of six Baha'is who'd been in prison in Yemen. They were released on July 30th of this year. but that was a joint effort. There were 10 governments plus uh, uh, one of the uh, UN agencies was particularly involved.
0: Mitch, I'm curious for you also, who have been some of the, the champions currently for, for your work? I, I would say particularly, again, not just on, on the climate change aspect, but, but coming from the religious side as well.
4: Well, we've had a lot of it, probably the, one of the largest Partnerships and best partnerships happened uh, 12 years ago with Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee. Um, EEN and many faith groups were really worked very hard on the mercury and air toxic standard, which was just rolled back by the Trump administration this year. Um, But Senator Lamar Alexander was a Republican champion of that standard. Um, He fought very hardly to keep it going and prevent something called the Congressional Review Act from being passed, and we were a key supporter of of him. So, um, I think he's one of the champions. I'll be very sad to see him leave the Senate at the end of this year. Uh, Certainly one of the great gentlemen and was willing to work bipartisan efforts. Um, Currently, we've done a lot of work with Senator Braun from Indiana. He's one of the uh, solution, or a climate solution, bipartisan climate solution in the Senate members, leader Republican, Um, my own Senator Bob Casey, and I mean, the list goes on and on of the senators that we work with. But I think, you know, we do it as a matter of our faith. And um, I think people recognize that of of who I am and what we do. Um, And we do it because of our faith and our love for people. And I think the best thing I can tell people on the Hill is to be genuine, be who you are, um, be honest, build relationships, um, but it's okay to be who you are, because I think the more people understand that you're a genuine human being, it's a lot easier to convey messages, even different policy messages to people, and get good, honest response, and do it with integrity. I mean, that's something I think is the biggest thing I think all of us that are on this panel, uh, at least I hope would be, is that the, the integrity, Because sometimes there's so little integrity in some places in Washington, but members of the faith community or those who associate with a philosophy of bringing a general, sincere belief in what you're doing and that integrity with it um, is something that I think is so important. I think that's one of the greatest things that all the faith communities can bring to policy is having integrity and honesty and compassion.
0: And I'm sure that that actually uh, dovetails very much with Roger and, and your efforts and in, in presenting what your group is about. Um, are there uh, particular partners that you've had? I mean, even if you're looking at uh, interfaith spaces as well.
3: Absolutely. Uh, we work with uh, a number of different uh, interfaith groups. There's one interfaith alliance. Um, uh, we've worked with the B, uh, the BJC Baptist Joint Committee. Uh, uh, we've worked with. Um, uh, the Secular Coalition of America, which is a, a secular group but has a number of uh, sec, uh, religious uh, organizations that are represented within that coalition um, and similarly with the Freedom From Religion uh, Foundation um, and, and then uh, AU, Americans United, um, as recently as uh, last week I was lobbying with them um, and uh, and I have lobbied with uh, all three of those groups, SCA, um, AU, FFRF, um, and I've been uh, a part of panel discussions as well um, with the BJC and Interfaith Alliance oh, and lobbied with them as well. So we, we're partners in, in you know, the same aims of trying to create a more humanistic model of, um, you know, the world that we live in uh, through healthy barriers of separation with church and state. And, um, and that, that necessarily uh, implicates us um, sort of um, just being good to one another and recognizing the humanity in, in each other.
0: Roche, what have been some of the pitfalls that you see maybe the media stumbling into when they have covered some of the issues around black atheists uh we don't get covered
3: that often um i think the, there you
0: the, go so it's a story ripe, ripe for the taking
3: yeah the, that's the we, we can start right there um so we don't get covered that often but one of the things that i will say is um for example um a couple of my, couple of things come to mind. Uh, in the last, well, last year, when the uh, situation with the Virginia governor came to the fore of him being in blackface and, you know, being sort of, you know, revealed to have had this history of these antics and so forth, um, you know, one of the themes of uh, of the reaction in the media was to say, you know, we should go and talk to the faith community, to the black church, to see, you know, whether or not black people will forgive that kind of behavior, or whether we'll sort of essentially, you know, you know, give it a pass or or condemn him. And that was the extent of the conversation around how to deal with this these kinds of caricatures, the, these sort of you know racist caricatures that endure and how that contributes to, to the inequities in our society. And it was just discussed in the framework of the black church. What does the black church think about it? If we go to a church on Sunday, if he goes to a church and gives a speech, you know, then all will be well. And so uh, in terms of media representation, that's, that been, you know, that's one of the things that people like me were looking at the television like, ah! <laughs> like, like there are more people in the black community than in the black church. And the black church, what does that really mean? You know, like how many types of black people go to church, you know, and how many black people go to different types of church, you know. Um, You know, what does that mean to say that if they go to a black church, then it's all well. Um, So I. To me, I would say first being covered as a legitimate part of the black community. Um, not that we're, uh, you know, the predominant part, but that we are a significant, uh, uh, a significantly represented um, amount of people in this community, that we have organizations that represent our views, and that even if um, everybody is not atheist or there's not as many people as we would protect, uh, we would like there to be in terms of just, you know, thought models, that we are, are the stream of our ideas are still represented in other parts of the black community, even if there are black people who don't identify as atheists. That's a distinction that is not covered. Um, Skepticism, critique of religious ideas and theology is something that runs all through our community, even if it's not, you know, dressed in atheism. Uh, Being able to represent that and to seek that out is something that the media does not do a good job of.
0: We've got a question here from Adele Banks uh, from RNS who asks, uh, I I assume this is for Mitch, uh, is it harder to get the attention on Capitol Hill and elsewhere for environmental issues right now in the midst of the attention on other issues such as the coronavirus pandemic and racial tensions, or do you think, or do you, do you link your cause to some of these other
4: issues? The answer is yes to all of them. Actually, talking about the environment right now um, with the Republican side of things is not that important, but talking about COVID and racial justice. I mean, one of our really strong points as is, is people of faith is uh, redlining, the tradition of redlining as a racist attitude is definitely one of the reasons that people of color live in most highly polluted areas in the country. You know, one of the things that I talk about all the time is that uh, one in eight women have early-term pregnancies because of PM 2.5. But in the Black community, it's one in five women. And that's a significant difference. And I think we have to be racially sensitive to all those issues and stand up. But we do also talk it into COVID. And one of the things we've been working hard with a lot of other groups on is and when there is a sort of a recovery stimulus package ever put together about having it funding and putting people back to work doing clean and green things that are going to be sustainable. And that's been one of our big driving points for this year. So, um, you know, ever since COVID took place, and then depending on the results of the election, we'll see where we go with climate um, next year.
0: Mitch, are there, similar similar to uh, the question that I asked to Roger, are there, are there ways that media is covering this intersection between evangelicals and environmentalism that you think merits improvement? Or do you feel like there's been... Um, a, a strong coverage from, from various angles on it?
4: You know, it. I think it depends on the season. Right now, our Young Evangelicals for Climate Action group is getting a lot of in the regular um, press because they're Young Evangelicals standing up for climate. So they've been in the news um, quite a bit lately, being published. Uh, very little in the religious publications, but in secular publications and reporting. Um, but we have not had a great deal of that except when a key issue comes up like the mercury vert or methane. Um, we had a nice segment on uh, News Hour a couple months ago talking about the stimulus package in our request, but very little. And I think that's uh, one of the factors of life is that, um, you know, I don't think people understand that groups like EEN, you know, have over 5 million pro-life Christians who have taken action on the environment. And that's still sort of unbelievable in people's minds that there's, we get tend to be lumped in with a far right evangelical movement, which is, I would say that we're center right, along with the National Association of Evangelicals. And uh, there's a blurring of lines between who we are and who actually, you know, it's just like any group, like Roger was just saying about the black community, even in the evangelical community, there's all sorts of different people. And the largest section is probably those who are conservative theologically and politically, but i would say that the very far extreme far right is probably 10% of their community not all the community great
0: waser well, wrapping up here um we're getting to the to the end of our time and um i i know that the the hill is a small place and it can be sort of a small neighborhood neighborhood of hallways that uh i'm curious if if any of you have have bumped into each other or attended each other's Activities if you've been on the hill, found um, areas for partnership?
3: I don't think I have, but um, I, I did have a chance to meet someone um, in a discussion pre pandemic from uh, I think the Baha'i, it might be the same Baha'i, U.S. Baha'i office that Anthony uh, comes from. Um, he was a gentleman, uh, he's Cape Verdean, and um, I can't remember his name, but if. Uh, oh, yes.
2: Yeah, yeah that was. Uh probably PJ Andrews
3: yes PJ yeah. Yeah, yeah it was PJ very good so, yeah I had a chance to meet with him and talk with uh, you know share a discussion with him early this year uh, I never met mr. Uh, Hescox, so it's nice to meet you as well um, and look forward to uh, doing some kind of work with you certainly on environmental justice um, if there's anything that we could do um, or team up with um, I'll send you my information so we can yeah
2: get that. similarly okay. similarly we have a uh, a sustainable development officer named Ian Hamilton, who, if if you don't mind, uh, uh, Mitch, I'll uh, let him know if you're, ex- he probably knows about you already, and I don't realize it, uh, but uh,
4: I, I think sure. I have met him as, as well, or at least someone else from the Baha'i faith in one of the Washington gatherings. So, but yeah, it's, it's fun. And I guess one of the things that, that I like to sort of have a dialogue between panelists on is, if uh, it's sorry, with our host for a minute, is that we at EEN never use the word interfaith, because at least from our community, it sort of tends to make that there's one faith all mixed together, And but we recognize and love the word multi-faith, because that recognizes that there is a diversity of faiths and are different. And to me, it's a much more palatable, actually demonstrative word to think about that there are multi-faiths, and how can multi work together instead of sorting us, making us match together as one. And I'd love to have your feedback on that. Right.
0: Well, I won't take offense to the name of my radio show. <laughs> but you know, any feelings about about uh, the terminology, interfaith or, or multi faith efforts, Roger I, or Anthony? I mean, actually, it, Roger. Yeah, in particular, given that.
3: Yeah, it it, it makes sense Uh no, no disrespect to the interfaith uh, organizations that already exist. Um I I still rock with y'all. <laughs> um but it uh, I I take the point uh Mitchell, it, I take the point.
2: Yeah, that's actually a deep theological question. Um and um mm-hmm. the the Bahai perspective on it is uh very distinctive uh and um we could chat about it at some point, but our, our perspective is essentially that with only a few exceptions, all of the great religions of the world are actually from one God mm-hmm. and that it's all one common faith with various manifestations over over time, according to the needs of the time and the capacity of the people to understand at any point in history. Uh, and so, uh, so... Yeah, but we don't impose our views on others either. So uh, if you wish to use the word multi-faith, we have no objection to, to using mm-hmm. that word.
0: Um, are, there, are there other questions that you all have uh, uh, for each other? Um, I'm, I'm curious. I, Anthony, you mentioned that, you know, obviously doing environmental work is a part of, of the office there um, ways in which not just on the religious freedom issue, but you've been able to work on, um, issues beyond just specifically concerning, um, obviously just beyond faith directly.
2: Yes, there are, you know, I think Mitch, uh, if I may call you Mitch, I'm not sure. You or, okay. Uh, what you stated earlier is, uh, we would echo, uh, about, uh, Creation being a trust that you know for humanity to uh, take care of, that uh, uh, human life is uh, is sacred, and that um, we have an obligation to take care of the planet uh, since uh, all of our lives, either in the short run or in the long run, are dependent on it, and that uh, there are profound moral issues associated with that, and and of course religion uh and its basic teachings of morality uh have a lot to say about uh environmental uh management and who's suffering and who caused the harm and uh, you know what kind of repair should be done and uh where we move for the future and how important how important are the lives of people who live 80 years from now? You know, are they of zero importance? Uh, sometimes we behave that way, but uh, any form of morality, it would seem, would uh, suggest that those lives are extremely important. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're um, so we're very much involved in the discourses uh, with other, you know, um, not only religious groups but secular groups in this on this area, and uh, you know, we try to contribute in ways that we hope are helpful to the uh, advance of the conversation.
4: Anthony, the one point that I'd really agree with you on, in fact, I'm moderating a panel um, next week or the week after with Muslim, Catholic, Evangelical, and Jewish folks on the common thread of creation care, the common thread of caring for this planet. And I think that is one multi-faith and using my language issue that does connect very many different traditions that we all have a, a concern for this planet and especially the people that live on it now and in the future. Yeah.
0: We've got a couple of questions that came in from our our uh, audience here. So Julia Dean is asking Roger, "What are you hoping to lobby for?" And, and admits that she's a bit confused.
3: So the lobbying efforts that I've been a part of um, were for the HR Bill for HR fourteen fourteen fifty, which is the Do No Harm Act. Uh, it currently has about. Uh, 175 or 178 co-sponsors, it is something that is a uh, bill that is being put forward to create some protections and some corrections for what we see as a distorted RIFRA law uh, or abuse of law. So the RIFRA law in the mid-90s sort of addressing a very specific kind of religious uh, sect um, that was for the Native Americans in, in a particular tribe using a particular type of drug and so forth um, was was sort of designed to address that specific uh, phenomenon. And since then, um, really as a response to the um, normalization of LGBTQ identity and um, and all that comes along with that have been a proliferation of um, refer claims essentially that sort of expand out that um that language to cover pretty much anything so to the point where at some point you could potentially make a legal argument that you don't stop at stoplights because you have a religious view that says you can keep driving as long as you feel you know the the unction of the holy spirit or so forth and so um that's the kind of thing that um the do no harm act addresses and so i've been working um, with the uh, the interfaith the multi-faith uh, coalitions that we have to um, to really tell um, not just uh, not to advocate just for the bill but to also tell my specific story um, which is another that's another discussion but i can you know um, sort of lend voice to that to the lawmakers and to their chiefs of staff um, to um, to sort of try to make some some Corrections and provisions for, for everybody else.
0: Another question came in here from um, my, my uh, co-planner for this panel, Menahem Wecker, uh, who is asking, how do the panelists think about the word power as used in the panel title? Um, so another another question about about the use of language. Is there is there a different way someone who is religious, who believes that there's a higher power, thinks of his or her power uh, when lobbying? Does a non-believer think differently about what an individual individual or group's power can and should be?
4: I think the power. Well, I mean, from a Christian point of view, it's a question that uh, you know Jesus asked Pontius Pilate. Um, if you look at the Bible and the tradition, but I think. Recognizing that there is political and policy power here in the United States and in Congress? Absolutely. But I think the problem happens in, in some faith groups and other groups, and, and especially even in some evangelical circles, is that um, from a Christian perspective, there are too many people that want to make power in Congress their king, and in their part of their faith, instead of recognizing that we have a moral responsibility from our sacred text to speak into that power, not try to create that power. And I think um, that's a real distinction that I'd like to make, is that our job is to hold people accountable to our faith or our morality, not to try to reinstall kings or make kings um, to keep some nebulous idea of America going forward. Are you including in that
0: idea this this idea that um, that lawmakers are are chosen by God? That that sort of rhetoric no. is that part of is that part of the issue that you're
4: talking about? Well, I think it absolutely is. That I would ref, you know refute that, that. that's not who we are and what we're supposed to be standing for. I mean, I like to quote my job is for those who know the Hebrew Bible that the Nathan that confronted King David when he had his affair with Bathsheba. It's our job as people of faith to stand up to power, not create power. To hold power accountable, not to be the purveyors of that power, but to get people to stand up to truth and justice and what we're called to as people of faith. Um, That's my strong belief in what I do every day, um, is to try to be accountable as best I can as a human being.
0: Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. Thanks again to the Religion News Association for providing the audio from our conference back in September 2020. And thanks again to my excellent panelists, Zebra Murat, a Uyghur American human rights advocate, Roger from Black Nonbelievers DC, Reverend Mitchell Hescox from the Evangelical Environmental Network, and Anthony Vance from the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'is of the U.S., as always, a big thanks to my fellow Interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovemeyer and Sue Petz miller and to our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, for providing our theme music. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Remember to leave a rating and a review. You can follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish and like our content. And, of course, we want to hear about what you've learned from our shows, dear listeners, so keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.